Atlanta police detectives say their strongest piece of evidence is this surveillance image of a person of interest, as well as Jennifer's car, which was found at a condo complex about a mile from where she lived. On January 24, 2006, 24-year-old Jennifer Kessie was reported missing when she failed to show up for work. The only lead in the case? A mysterious person of interest captured on video leaving her car. To this day, that person and Jennifer's whereabouts are still unknown. Unconcluded is a real-time investigative podcast taking another look. You can subscribe or listen on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. So we're still waiting for that one person to come through with the one bit of information that could bring Jennifer home. Welcome to Insight. This is Charlie and with me is Allie. How are you, Allie? Hi, hi. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm great. I've been really busy working with one of our teen hosts of our new production, Insight Junior. Uh, You guys should go out and subscribe. Our first two episodes are up and it's been, you know, an adventure trying to help a a teen, (laughs) you know, learn how to start a podcast and edit and everything. But we've been having a lot of fun with it. And it's basically insight, but for all ages. And so we hope you guys will check it out, check it out with your kids and, you know, even send us some feedback on it. Today's story, we're going to go through the online events that led up to the murder of Brian Barrett, a 22-year-old college student. In most cases, almost every single episode we've done, we start with the victim, but this series of events was set into motion well before Brian even entered into the story. And that's one of the most tragic parts. He was dragged into a story that shouldn't have ever been his. And one day after leaving work, he was gunned down. So to tell this story, we actually have to start a little further back. And that means starting with Tom Montgomery and his entrance into online chat rooms in 2005. Thomas Montgomery had a pretty normal life. As a young man, he enlisted in the Marines. He took a lot of pride in having served for his six years, though he had never seen combat. In talking about his time in the Marines, he sounds like he regrets that he never went to combat. He would start using the online screen name, quote, Marine Sniper, though his service did not include sniper training. According to his military records, He was a good shot. He qualified as a sharpshooter. And for those who don't know, the Marines have three qualifications for marksmanship, both in rifle and pistol. Sharpshooter is the middle qualification. To be a sniper, you need, obviously, the top qualification of expert. So not only was Tom not actually a sniper, he never even qualified to apply to be a sniper. Now, okay, This might sound like I'm nitpicking his screen name or his past or his ability to shoot a gun, but a major thread through this story has to do with Tom's dissatisfaction with the life he actually has and his foray into having a fantasy life versus his reality. And I think this may be a small step on that slippery slope 
by signing up as Marine Sniper as his screen name, but it was definitely a step. In his early 30s, Tom married his wife, Cindy, and they would go on to have two daughters, and they lived outside Buffalo, New York. He was a very involved dad. He held leadership positions with his daughter's swim club. He worked for more than 12 years at a local factory as a machinist. His coworkers found him nice enough, though he was a bit odd and awkward. He says he considered going back to school, do something else with his career, but he had a family, he had bills. It's, it's difficult to make those big changes and make your family make those big changes to pursue a dream when you already have a good and steady job. He played poker with the guys from work on Friday nights. He taught Sunday school on Sunday mornings. His marriage had some problems. He characterized them as being primarily communication issues, but also, like some men in their mid to late 40s will experience, he was dealing with impotence. The combination of the dwindling physical intimacy and the lack of emotional intimacy, he and Cindy were struggling. They talked to counselors at church, and they were trying to work on their marriage. All of this sounds like a very typical suburban working-class family life with ups and downs. It wasn't a ton of excitement, but it was stable. It's a life that a lot of people would be totally fine with, but for someone who wanted to have this past as a combat marine sniper, it was boring for Tom. In spring of 2005, Tom got into online gaming through a website called Pogo.com. Pogo has a ton of games. Scrabble, Texas Hold'em, all those kind of games that you can play online. And you play online with other people, not just against the computer or against yourself. And Pogo also has chat capabilities. So not only are you playing these games with other people, you get to know them and you're chatting with them while you do it. Something I'm sure we've all experienced online, people often feel emboldened to share more online. They can type without people knowing their name, their backstory, and they can speak without someone seeing their emotions. For someone like Tom, who found communication with people in person difficult, he opened up a lot in these chat rooms with people who were total strangers. Like you said, Charlie, he got really involved in the gaming website Pogo. While he filled out his profile with his actual age of 46 at the time, he found himself in a teen-only gaming room. It seems unclear if he was really creeping teens or if he didn't realise. He's not a reliable narrator in this and he's the only one who knows why he said he was there. He started chatting with another game player with a screen name Tall Hot Blonde. She had clicked on his profile and asked him if he knew that he was in a teen room. He said his first thought was of those online stings to catch predators, so he said that it was his dad's account he was playing on and he was actually 18. So as far as he knew it was a teen room at the time or not, he didn't exactly leave when he was told, so you can draw your own conclusions. Tall Hot Blonde told him that she was 18 years old and she was from a small town in West Virginia and her name was Jessie. She had a pretty normal small town life. She had a mum, a dad, a brother. She played high school sports and was getting ready to go to prom and graduate. But she didn't have a lot planned after that. There wasn't much of a future in that small town. Tom, on his part, claimed he was Tommy. 
He was an 18-year-old ready to head out to Marine boot camp. He was tall, muscular and handsome. He would eventually reveal an entire backstory to Jesse, which was entirely made up. It was the ultimate in fantasy role-playing, except that he left Jesse in the dark about it being a role. The backstory would eventually include his mum dying of cancer when he was 12, his father being a military man, he had a black belt and a bullet wound in his shoulder. It wasn't all roses though. Apparently Tommy had raped a girl in high school and enlisting in the Marines was part of reclaiming his life. He struggled with darkness, with both depression and suicidal ideation. He, as in Tommy, was headed to boot camp in June and then Iraq, where Tom intended on killing off Tommy. It seems as though Tommy was supposed to be just a passing persona in order to get an attractive teenager to keep talking to him. But he built in an escape route, so it would only be a side thing for fun before he got back to reality. Tommy would die off and then it would all be over. But over the next couple of months, the fantasy started becoming more and more important to Tom. He would go to his day job, take his girls to their activities, and then come home to the internet. His wife could tell things were changing. He would stay up late, sometimes literally until he had to leave for work in the morning chatting to Jesse. He compared it to his younger years when he battled alcoholism. He believed he was addicted to the internet or to Jesse or to the excitement it brought. The relationship didn't gradually go from casual chatting to this intensity of him staying up all night. It actually pretty much started at the intense level. Jesse sent Tommy pictures that very first night they started chatting. Tom described them as provocative, but not pornographic. In exchange, he sent a picture of himself in his dress uniform. And this was actually Tom's Marine picture from 30 years ago. Their chats were about bearing their souls to each other and supporting each other. And they were also often about sex. The pictures continued, but again, none contained nudity in spite of the sexually explicit texts. They then started talking on the phone periodically, though their relationship continued mostly online. If you think about it, Tom was married. He had two children, a day job, and he was 46 years old, pretending to be 18. There was... Probably only so much phone time he felt safe risking. In case you're wondering, this episode would be really short if Tom actually had Tommy killed off in Iraq. He didn't. He really was too attached to this fantasy. While Tommy was in boot camp, Tom's first chance to cut off communication with Jesse, because we know Marines in boot camp can't instant message around the clock, he actually invented a second character, Tom Sr., that's Tommy's father. So this Tom Sr. would be an intermediary and send messages back and forth from Tommy and Jesse. This was a way for regular Tom, reality Tom, to keep talking to Jesse while his alter ego was at boot camp. Tommy was supposedly headed to Iraq shortly after boot camp, and then he could talk with Jesse when he was off duty. Though Tom Sr. didn't entirely disappear. I don't know what this was. Maybe it was trying to make it more realistic. There would be times Tommy wouldn't be available if he was actually a real person in Iraq. So Tom Sr. would talk to Jesse instead. I'm not really sure the motivation of keeping Tom Sr. But I actually don't understand a whole lot of what we're talking about tonight. So I think it just goes along with that. (laughs) 
As it goes with intense relationships, they eventually had their first very intense fight. Tommy found out that Jesse was sending her photos to other guys in chat rooms, and he was furious at this betrayal. Even after Tommy decided to forgive Jesse, Tom Sr. was still mad, and he would message her that she really hurt Tommy and that Tommy was an idiot for believing her since she was a liar. And yes, let's all remember this is still Tom. You know, the married ma- father of two who, accusing Jesse of betraying him, accepted her apology, and then as yet another character continued to berate her in messages about her being a liar. Like I said, I don't understand a whole lot of this. Jesse sent Tommy a gift as an apology, and she'd later send more small packages to him. This initial package, however, was a pair of her underwear and a keychain that said something about being the key to her heart. About six to eight months into this relationship with Tommy in Iraq, he proposed to Jesse in December of 2005. Also around this time, Tom wrote a note to himself that he kept in his work locker. In part, it read, On December 2, 2006, Tom Montgomery, 46 years old, ceases to exist and is replaced by an 18-year-old battle-scarred Marine. He's moving to West Virginia to be with the love of his life. He included other details in there about who Tommy was, including imaginary millions in the bank and skills and even the size of Tommy's penis. He started telling people at work about his girlfriend and how he was going to leave his wife for her eventually. And when he didn't turn into an 18-year-old Marine after the new year, surprisingly, he wrote about wishing he knew when he would become the new Tom so he could prepare for it. How literal do we take this note? I mean, is it some metaphor for becoming the man he wants to be? Or did he literally think he could transform back to an 18-year-old if he willed it hard enough? His behaviours at home and in work, aside from the internet obsession, it didn't change drastically. He still went to work. He still took his daughters to swimming. He claims he felt guilty sneaking around behind his wife's back. So on one hand, he seemed rooted in reality, but he was still living a double life and still acting like it. But this note is really odd because it sounds like a break from reality. I judge his actions more than his words, and while I think he was losing this line between fantasy and reality, and he was forming an unhealthy attachment, not only to Jesse, but his own attachment to this fake Tommy, this fantasy person he could be, I still think he was probably largely in his right mind. He still knew he was Tom. He knew he wasn't going to roll back the clock. Maybe this note was just him visualizing the fantasy, but then the note about wondering when he'll turn into this Tom. That one, that one's weird. That one, I'm not quite sure how that fits. I mean, is it just just an act of desperation of this is who he wished he was? It could be. He could just have been that far down about his life. As often happens with these secret love affairs, Tom's wife eventually found out. In February or March of 2006, one of his daughters was using the computer and he hadn't logged out of whichever instant messaging program he had recently been using. A message popped up from Jesse to Tommy and his daughter showed it to her mother. Cindy was already suspicious something was going on online, but she hadn't snooped yet. Now she had a reason to. 
Some reports say that she intercepted a package from Jesse to Tom, but I got the impression she found wherever in the house he was hiding these little packages. She found the love notes and the sexy underwear and photos of this 18-year-old girl. She immediately confronted Tom. This was an 18-year-old on the internet who believed she was talking to another 18-year-old. What in the world was he thinking? You can just imagine what she felt at that moment. How could he spend all that time and energy on a make-believe relationship rather than sitting down and spending that same time and energy on their marriage? She offered him a divorce, or a separation even, and according to what Tom told co-workers, he stayed in the house, but he did move down into the basement. But Cindy wasn't done just with talking to her husband. She decided to write a letter to Jesse and enclosed a family photo. Her letter wasn't angry toward Jesse. She sounded like she felt sorry for her. The letter read in part, Jesse, enclosed you will find a picture of my family. Let me introduce you to these people. The man in the center is Tom, my husband. There is no Tommy. He is taking advantage of you. You need to be much more cautious with your safety. You will only be hurt by a man who has mastered the art of manipulation and lies. Do not trust words on a computer. Let this go. That's a very motherly letter to Jesse, which that's kind of struck me that it's not an angry letter. It's a it's a very maternal letter. Jesse was blindsided getting this letter, and so she began messaging Tommy asking if it's true. And then she started messaging Brian Barrett, who used the handle Beefcake1572. He played the same game and in the same chat room, and somehow she had figured out they knew each other and that he was a coworker or friend or something of Tom's or at least someone who knew him in real life, and he was able to confirm to her that, yes, this is Tom. He's in his 40s. He works in a factory. Some background on Brian before we get further into the events. Brian was a 22-year-old part-time worker at the factory, while he was also enrolled in college to become a teacher. He was described as happy-go-lucky and as a guy who simply didn't complain about things. He was really close to his family. He was the oldest of three sons. And like we said, Jessie reached out to him to find out the truth of Tom. She thought or hoped that the letter from Cindy was just a jealous girl making this up to come between them. But Brian confirmed what Cindy said. Jessie sent angry messages to Tom, who in turn apologised and later claimed to actually be relieved that he has been exposed for that the relationship would be forced to end. And honestly, their relationship progressed a bit like Tom and Jesse's did. She started sending him the same pictures. They started with the same explicit talk. They were starting what seemed like a new romance as Jesse started getting over Tom. Except Jesse wasn't over it, or anywhere near over it. She was angry and she started using the relationship with Brian to get back at Tom. The actual break in communication between Jesse and Tom after he was exposed was only two weeks. She would taunt him with her relationship with Brian. She would message him about how nice it was that Brian didn't lie to her and how she could trust him and how they're close in age. She would tell him that she talked to Brian on video chat, which obviously Tom could never do because he was pretending to be 18. She and Brian would publicly taunt him in the game rooms for being a predator, and he was rightfully so kicked out of the game room. 
She would give Brian her password so he could get online and message Tom as though he was Jesse. And then Brian, egged on by Jesse, took it to real life and started talking about both his relationship with Jesse openly at work, but about how Tom made up that he was 18 years old to prey on this girl. Tom messaged Jesse that half the company thought he was a loser and a predator. He was losing everything. He was losing his marriage, his image at work, and even his status in the community as parents didn't want him around their teenage children. Tom was definitely feeling sorry for himself at this point, but I'm having a hard time drumming up a whole lot of sympathy for him. Tom told Brian and Jesse to just leave him alone, and Brian was ready to stop the drama anyway. He wanted to move on to enjoy this new relationship with Jesse without making their relationship all about her relationship with Tom. Jesse even invited him to West Virginia to finally meet her, and he let that information slip to a friend at work. Of course, it got to Tom, and Tom confronted him about this trip. Brian and Tom were not on speaking terms otherwise. Brian told Tom that he was getting sick of Jesse's drama, and he actually wasn't sure what he was going to do. Tom sent some ugly messages about Jesse and said he couldn't believe Brian was choosing Jesse over their friendship. It's pretty obvious Tom didn't care about his friendship with Brian. Again, this was all about Jesse. Eventually, Jesse messaged Brian that she thinks all he wants is sex, and so the trip was off. She didn't want him to come, and then she broke up with him. Brian wasn't that upset about it because he was, like I said, already kind of cooling on her with all the drama anyway. It wasn't long after that, as odd as it may sound, that Tom and Jesse started their online relationship up again. So she knows who he is. She knows that he's married with kids. She knows that his kids are not a whole lot younger than her. But she tells him how much she still loves Tommy and always will and how Tommy lives inside of Tom. And my eyes are rolling at this point. And Tom reciprocates this feeling of missing her and Tommy. And so they decide to start over as friends. But before long, they slip back into this fantasy world and they start up the sex messaging aspect as well. And I am not going to read any of these sex messaging logs to you because I'm going to be honest, I actually laughed while I read them because they were just so cliche. Things about his snake and... But look, you, you can find them all yourselves. I'm sure we can put links up. Oh, but... I'm sure we'll put links up and you guys can enjoy them as much as we did. But we're not going to get into them. They were, they were really eye-roll worthy. Tom wasn't getting over Jesse's relationship with Brian or with what he perceived as them teaming up and betraying him. Jesse was also messaging other men and not terribly discreetly either. He sent her a lot of messages about why she kept hurting him like this, apparently forgetting that he had previously proposed marriage to her while being married to his wife. Reading through the messages definitely gives the impression that he saw himself as a victim in this relationship. He eventually physically threatened her, telling her to leave him alone or he would go to West Virginia and hurt her or her mum. She would promise not to message anyone else, especially Brian. Brian was really the focus of a lot of this. But then Brian showed up on Jesse's MySpace page. Remember MySpace? This was back when MySpace was the number one social media platform. And the drama would start all over again. 
She would go back and forth between talking to Brian and apologising to Tom for doing so. Tom's messages to Jesse continued to contain threats and abuse. His messages to Brian, they weren't much better. Then Tom found out Brian planned on visiting Jesse in person and he really lost it. We won't read those messages to you either, but I assure you they are not funny in the least. He wishes sexual violence on her. He uses racial slurs. It's ugly and it's abusive. Unlike Brian, who tired of the back and forth games, Tom and Jesse seem to thrive off the drama of their relationship. Every time one of them would decide to break it off, the other would beg them not to. This continued through the summer of 2006. However, in late summer 2006, Tom found out that Brian and Jesse were talking online again. It started with the same cycle. He heaped abuse on her. She apologized. He threatened her and Brian. She didn't say much in response to these threats towards Brian except to apologize or to assure him that she and Brian were just friends. She did at some point message Brian to tell him that Tom was threatening him. And Brian confessed that Tom had once tried to hit him with his car in the work parking lot. And he wondered if he should tell his boss or other co-workers about this. But on the whole, it doesn't seem like Brian felt an immediate danger. He said Tom mostly just ignored that he existed. But Jesse eventually changed the script of abuse, threats, apologies, and then sex messaging. She did probably the only thing that would get to Tom more than anything— She just was done. She decided it was over and for real this time. Whether it's because she got tired of the relationship or because she thought Tom was unraveling and was actually a threat, we don't know. On Wednesday, September 13th, he sent her an instant message around 1 a.m. calling her a whore. She replied with, I'm leaving now, and she logged off. He kept messaging her on and off all Wednesday without response. On Thursday, September 14th, He messaged her an explicit text, telling her to perform a specific sexual act on her boyfriend, Brian, and he got no response from her for this at all. On Friday, September 15th, Tom woke her up with a phone call. When she answered, he proceeded to scream at her, and she hung up on him without saying a word. Later that night, just before midnight, Tom messaged Jesse again to no response, He had just asked if she was waiting on her boyfriend. Two hours later, he messaged her one more time, saying Brian wouldn't mind her talking to him. Two days later, an employee at the factory came to work, and they noticed Brian's car was still in the back parking lot. The rear passenger tyre was flat, and through the rolled-up driver's window, he could see three bullet holes and Brian slumped over. He immediately called 911. And piecing together what likely happened, Brian clocked out of work on Friday around 10.15pm. Whoever shot him had planned ahead and flattened his tyre. This was possibly to strand him in the parking lot in the event other employees were still around when Brian clocked out. It's likely Brian never saw the flat tyre since it was dark and he obviously climbed into his truck already and closed the door. The shooter came up from behind the truck and fired three shots into the cab hitting Brian twice with one shot being fatal. Brian lived with his parents, who were away for the weekend camping with their younger son. Brian had no plans for the weekend, so it wasn't until his parents came home on Sunday and realised the cats hadn't been fed all weekend and there were no signs of Brian had made it home that anyone knew he was missing. 
but they would only be home an hour trying to figure out what happened before a police officer would arrive at their door to tell them that Brian had been found dead. In talking to employees at the factory, a few pointed toward Tom as someone Brian had ongoing issues with. Not only did he have issues with Brian, he had been acting erratic at work and had recently asked another coworker about Brian's schedule. And they told the police a little bit about this girl that both Brian and Tom had been dating on and off online and that she was at the root of a lot of their conflict. So they went to look for Tom and they couldn't find him. The investigators started to be concerned that if he was the one who killed Brian, he may be on his way to West Virginia, or at this point, he likely was already there. They were concerned for Jesse's safety, so they tracked her down on the phone. They confirmed with her over the phone that she did have a relationship with Brian online. They warned her that she might be in danger. She provided them with her address, so then the police in New York who had called her went ahead and called her local police department to to let them know what was going on and for them to head over to the house to check the situation. When the police got there, Jesse's mom, Mary, opened the door and said Jesse wasn't there. She was actually staying in a different city, but she wasn't sure how to get in touch with Jesse. The West Virginia police called up to a confused New York detective who told him something's going on here because he had just talked to Jesse on the phone and confirmed that she was at the house. So the West Virginia police went back to the door and pushed a little harder. Where is Jesse? And that's when Mary broke down crying. Yes, Jesse was her 18-year-old daughter, but she wasn't having a relationship with Brian or Tom. Mary was. Mary had used her teen daughter's identity online to conduct both of these relationships. Mary was a 45-year-old married mother with two teenagers. She was a primary stay-at-home mum and was considered an amazing parent. She took Jessie prom dress shopping on trips to get their nails done and attended nearly all of her athletic events. She worked part-time doing office work at the middle school her kids attended for a short period of time being hired after the principal noticed what an attentive and caring person she was. She claims that she got into Pogo to play some games on the free account. When she decided to upgrade her account to a paid one, she didn't realise she was logged in to Jessie's account. Because she was on Jessie's account and Jessie's age was set as a teenager, it directed her towards the teen room. Like Tom, it sounds to me like she's playing this off as an accident, but she never actually corrects it. In fact, like Tom, she decided to pretend to be an 18-year-old. But not any 18-year-old. She decided to pretend that she was her daughter. Unlike Tom, Mary claims her 20-something year-long marriage was happy. She never fell for either of these men. She saw Tommy as a lost child with a tragic backstory who needed to know someone cared for him. And as far as Brian went, he came onto her and she didn't know how to discourage it without outing her real identity. Seriously, I didn't just make all that up. That's what she's claiming. Ignore the taunting of Tom after she found out that he was a grown man. Ignore the highly sexual messages she sent to Tom and Brian. Ignore the photos and gifts she sent. She claimed that she was just helping them out along with their lives. Speaking of those images, yes, those were actual photos of her daughter, Jessie. 
According to authorities, there were hundreds on her computer that she sent not just to Tom and Brian, but also to other men. Several of them appeared to have been taken without Jessie's knowledge or consent. And what has to be the worst of this, there were several upskirt videos of Jessie that she had taken without her daughter's consent and sent to multiple men asking if they like what they saw. And while we all continue to process as this was her actual daughter whose image she was exploiting, her argument that she was just being friendly with these kids who needed attention, it doesn't hold up when you remember that she found out Tommy was Tom several months before the murder. So she knew at that point she was talking to a grown man. And I'm sorry, she says that she doesn't know how to discourage Brian, but just say, look, I'm not interested. She doesn't even need to say, I'm not a teenager. Exactly. To say, I am not interested. And she knew that Tom at this point was a grown man who thought he was having virtual sex with an 18-year-old. I mean, if her motivation was to help Tommy see that someone cared for him, why did she keep talking to him when she knew he was Tom? So then she said her goal was to keep Tom from talking to actual 18-year-olds. She was preventing this predator from hurting an actual 18-year-old by continuing to talk to him, send him photos of her daughter, give her their home phone number, things like that. What a kind and thoughtful citizen she is. Yeah, and just like she was messaging multiple men, why did she think he wasn't going to go ahead and message multiple other 18-year-old girls? And how... Is sending provocative images and her daughter's underwear protecting anybody? This, Her arguments are absolutely ridiculous here. Well, exactly. Her argument is sending those to Tom or Tommy would stop him messaging other women but or girls, but she's still messaging other boys. Mary did give some information about the threats against Brian, but also claimed Tom called her the day after the murder, saying her boyfriend was easy enough to take care of. But enough of Mary for a bit. Police had uncovered the first mystery, who was Jessie, but they still needed to investigate the murder of Brian. Tom was looking more and more like their guy, but it was all circumstantial. They had to gather actual evidence. Two items were found near the truck. One was a peach pit that did have human DNA on it, and yes, that matched Tom's DNA. But Tom worked there, and he ate peaches not infrequently. It could be argued it was from a previous day or even earlier in the day when Tom was working. The gun clip was harder to explain away. It did trace back to Tom and had dog hair on it, consistent with Tom's dog. Okay, so a peach at work isn't suspicious, but why a gun clip? He made a comment to his wife on a phone call in regards to the clip that his car was always a mess. Did he have a loose gun clip in the car that had accidentally fallen out earlier and just happened to be next to Brian's truck and no one happened to pick it up? Police also seized Tom's computer and found that he had saved thousands of instant messages between him and Jesse as well as between him and Brian. Some of the messages were direct threats to Brian or about Brian made to Jesse. Of Brian, he said, he made a very deadly enemy and I hate him with a passion and for 10 cents, I would eliminate him. He admitted he nearly killed Brian before and he had pushed harder than he would have. This is possibly referring to the same incident Brian told Jesse about. Something that would become relevant later, Jesse, meaning Mary, 
never egged him on, encouraged him, said her life would be better without Brian or anything like that. From the messages I've seen, she tended to ask questions like, what do you mean? Or give neutral responses like, oh, she never once encouraged him to hurt Brian. Things are not looking great for Tom, though he continued to deny any involvement in the murder. He initially told police he was actually happy that Brian and Jesse were together because Jesse needed someone her own age. But of course, police had access to all these messages, just like Mary trying to spin it a different way. They had these messages. They were able to print them out from the chat logs. And these messages tell a very different story about how Tom felt about Brian and Jesse. He also claimed he had an alibi for the murder. He had been at a restaurant that night, returned home 10 or 10.15, which would have been at least five full minutes before Brian even clocked out at the factory and when we know he was still alive. And Tom said his wife and daughters can testify to this. They were awake and they know that's when he came home. His daughter seemed willing and remembered the evening the way he said it went, but his wife didn't. His wife said he did not get home until 10.30 or later. And now we're talking the world with cell phones. They were able to get his phone records and check out these pings and the triangulation. And while the technology isn't perfect, it did show him, or at least his phone, being closer to the factory than it was to his home at the time of the murder. And the last piece of evidence in the investigation was the murder weapon. It was never found, but the suspected make of the gun was narrowed down. They looked at guns that Tom had registered, and he didn't have a similar gun registered, but they found a photo from his home that had his clear glass gun case in the background. And they could see in that photo, in that background, that same make of gun in the case. So they went to check the actual case in his home, and that slot was empty. That gun was nowhere to be found. In November, Tom was arrested and charged with murder. Meanwhile, Mary was subpoenaed to testify to the grand jury. She had managed in the weeks after the murder to keep this from her family. But it was time to sit down and come clean. I'm kidding. Of course she didn't come clean. She told her husband that one of the online chat rooms she was in had a man who had a serious mental problem. She was friends with him and one of his co-workers, and the mentally unstable man got irrationally jealous. He murdered the co-worker, and she was subpoenaed because she knew both of them through the game room. Her husband, like Tom's wife, had noticed the internet becoming more and more important. He would leave for work while she was on the couch on her laptop and she wouldn't even look up. And then when he got home, it was the same thing. But he didn't think she was having an online relationship behind his back. And for her part, even when explaining why she needed to go to New York to testify for the grand jury, she denied these were online relationships or there was anything romantic or sexual happening. They were just normal chats about the online games they were playing and day-to-day stuff. She actually never told her husband what had actually happened. But it wouldn't be long before he found out, and he found out in probably the worst kind of way possible. Jessie had heard some things being said around town about the case and her mother's involvement, 
So she did what we all do these days. She Googled it. She found multiple articles talking about her mother using her identity to catfishing setup. Jessie went to her dad in an accusatory way. She thought he knew and was keeping it from her. And now he was blindsided as Jessie was because he trusted his wife when she told him what had happened. And he was devastated. More for Jessie than himself. He's seeing these pictures of his own teenage daughter being plastered around with these messages his wife was sending. You can only imagine what Jessie felt when she found out. And as a parent, I can tell you that you feel your own children's pain more acutely than your own sometimes. And I imagine this was one of those times for him. In the interview I saw with him, he got more emotional when he talked about the impact on his daughter than when he talked about being betrayed himself. He also got more emotional when talking about Brian's murder than when talking about his own issues. He mentioned wanting to contact the Barretts because he would like to reach out, but he didn't want to risk hurting them more. This is a man with a lot of empathy for others. That much is definitely obvious. We are bringing this up mostly because I think we often forget about the families who are also victims in these crimes. Brian and his family, of course. They have paid more than anyone. But Mary's family and Tom's families, their lives are forever changed and they've been deeply wounded by this crime. So back to Tom. After his arrest, he was told the truth about Jesse. He was shown a picture of Mary and told that he had been lied to. In fact, the only person who was being honest about who they were online was Brian Barrett. With the arrest and the revealing of Mary's identity and the complete end of his fantasy life, Tom became depressed. He weighed about 200 pounds when he was arrested, and within months he had probably lost 50 pounds or more because he had all but stopped eating. His wife visited him for the first few months after his arrest, but she eventually stopped visiting him. And all he had left were his daughters, who he said wrote him a letter basically saying they were done. They weren't going to stay in contact with him any longer. He found some sleeping pills another inmate had, and he took them all. His attempt at suicide was unsuccessful, but he was put on suicide watch. Tom insisted Brian had other enemies and had been getting phone calls from people harassing him and that the police needed to look at those people. He continued to maintain that he was innocent. His attorney had him speak to a psychologist to briefly explore this diminished capacity defense. Now, this is different than an insanity defense. Not guilty by reason of insanity would mean the person was found not guilty of the crime. Diminished capacity says that the defendant is guilty, but because of their diminished mental capacity, it fits a lesser charge. For instance, a first-degree murder charge would say that the person intended on committing the murder. But if they had diminished capacity, they wouldn't have had the ability to form that intent, so they'd be guilty of a lesser charge like manslaughter. However, it's hard to argue he didn't have the intent to murder when he made multiple threats against Brian and appeared to plan the crime. He waited out in the parking lot at least long enough to eat a peach while waiting on Brian to come out. He had asked about Brian's schedule a few weeks earlier. He flattened the tire to keep Brian in the parking lot. So the diminished capacity defense wasn't a great fit, and his attorney didn't think he could prove it in court. His attorney then took a hard look at the winnability of the case. 
with the peach pit DNA, the picture of the suspected murder weapon at the home, and the direct threats he made online to and about Brian, it would be a really hard case to win. The best chance he had was to get the jury to buy the alibi provided by his daughters. To do that, his daughters would go through the stress of testifying in court. Tom eventually decided to take the plea deal, but when his lawyer telling him it would be a difficult case to win and not wanting to put his daughters through the trial and the pressure of testifying, Tom said he felt pressured by his attorney at the time to take the deal. In August of 2007, he pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter. In the state of New York, manslaughter in the first degree means one person intended to cause serious physical injury to another and that injury resulted in death. The mandatory minimum sentence is five years, with the maximum being 25. Because he was taking a plea deal, he was required to allocate in court and essentially confess to the crime and give details of what happened that were consistent with the evidence. This is, as far as I know, the only time Tom ever came out and admitted to being the murderer of Brian Barrett. After he pled out, he was on suicide watch. As soon as he was off and could have access to writing utensils, he wrote out a petition to try to get out of the deal. He claimed he was pressured by his attorney into the plea and it wasn't what he wanted. He also says his attorney told him that he could back out of it at any time prior to sentencing. He fired his attorney and hired another one, who says he definitely thinks they could have tried for diminished capacity. He tried unsuccessfully to get Tom out of the deal, but it was found that Tom understood the pleas were binding and was not confused about it. So with the deal still in effect, in November, he was sentenced to 20 years in jail and five years for supervised release after the 20. With good behaviour and such adjustments, he could be out in more like 17 years. He attempted to appeal based on his desire to back out of the plea deal, but that was denied. Honestly, I think he was pretty lucky to get the plea he got. Exactly. I don't think he would have done any better at trial. Those chat room messages and those threats, he threatened to kill Brian and then he killed Brian. I think he could have probably gotten a first or second degree murder conviction instead and would have been spending 25 years to life. I 100% agree. He was lucky. Yeah. This case forever changed the lives of these three families. Mary's husband filed for divorce. Mary moved back in with her parents and Jesse moved away to live with family closer to where she attended college. As of a few years after Brian's murder, Jesse had completely cut her mother out of her life. Buffalo police poured over both the online conversations and the law to try to figure out what, if anything, they could charge Mary with. Her deception played a role in this case. But there was nothing. She never encouraged or enticed Tom into murdering anyone. It's not illegal to pretend to be an 18-year-old online as long as you're talking to other people who are 18 and up. Lying isn't against the law. Tom is the one who went in that parking lot and killed Brian. I just, it boils down to that. The only potential charge... I could see here would be the upskirt video she took of her daughter. But here's an interesting fact. It's been ruled in multiple states in the U.S. that upskirt photos and videos, as long as they're taken in public places, are not against the law because we do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in public spaces. 
If these photos or videos were taken in restrooms or dressing rooms, those are illegal because there's an expectation of privacy. Now, some states are adding upskirt photography to voyeurism laws, even in public spaces, but it's only a few states and it's only fairly recently. So this woman took and distributed an upskirt video of her own 18-year-old daughter, and even that was not illegal. As for Tom, his wife divorced him. He's serving his time in Attica, which is fortunate for him. Attica is not that far, probably like an hour from Buffalo, New York. So it's easy enough for his daughters to visit him because from my understanding, they do visit him. He will be eligible for conditional release in early 2024. Failing that, he'll finish a sentence in late 2026. The Barrett family has stood together in this unimaginable loss. They filed a wrongful death suit against Mary, Tom, and the factory where Tom and Brian worked for not doing more to intervene. People at the factory knew Tom's erratic behavior was escalating, that he had it out for Brian, but no one did anything to stop it. I mean, how much they knew or didn't know would be a matter for the court. It has been eight years since the wrongful death suit was filed, and I was not able to find any updates on it, whether it was dropped, dismissed, settled, or anything. It would have been filed in the Buffalo area of New York, so if anyone has better access to court records out that way than I do, please shoot me an email. We'll update if we hear anything on that case. Now, I have to admit, I knew nothing about this case until you brought it up on our schedule, Charlie, and then I watched the documentary. It strikes me as odd from the very beginning because everyone seemed to be making excuses for for Tom, that he was depressed and he was in love and he was in a dead-end marriage. He wanted to relive his youth. They made it seem like this sweet romance he was having, this middle-aged married man that he was having with a teenage girl And then the tone changes and suddenly they're painting Jessie as being this manipulative, dark seductress. And all of this is annoying to me because they paint Tom as the victim in the affair. As you said, he felt like he was pressured into pleading guilty for a crime that he actually did commit. When he was responsible for his actions, he needs to face the punishments for it. And as we said, he knew he was in that team gaming room from the beginning and he stayed there. He was never the innocent party right from the get-go. I think that documentary and other articles I've read have the same tone of this seductress who led this man astray. When we thought she was 18. He thought she was 18. He murdered someone. He did not get led astray. He walked astray. On his own two feet, he made these choices. He was a grown man. He didn't have any major psychological issue that would make him have difficulty telling the difference between reality and fantasy. This was an abusive man. i telling you, the abuse, we're not, you guys can look those messages up too. Racial slurs, misogynistic comments, cursing. He was terrible. So he was abusive and then it culminated in a death. There's something wrong with this idea that he was somehow the victim of this other woman. Now, this other woman has her own issues in pretending to be her daughter and sending those pictures and having this dramatic relationship online. 
But she didn't put a gun in Tom's hand. She didn't tell Tom to kill Brian. She didn't do anything except stir up some immature drama. I don't understand this perception that Tom is this poor man who clearly couldn't know better because men are too dumb and Mary is this seductress because women are terrible. I mean, there might be some argument to be made that she should be charged with something because of the role she played. But whatever charge you could come up with, it still couldn't be worse than actually shooting and killing someone. And I'm not even sure what that charge could be. I mean, she did do the wrong thing with the upskirt photos. But I mean, in real life, a woman cheated on her husband and then this man got jealous and killed her lover. So really, even if she was purposely trying to make him jealous and that's more or less what her role in the murder was, causing jealousy, the fact that she was catfishing him seems immaterial to me because because he would have reacted the same way even if she was who she says she was. Right. I think her putting her daughter's safety at risk, I do feel she did that on the internet, and that's not a good thing. She did a lot of not good things. She didn't kill anybody. (laughs) And I think we need to keep that in perspective. Tom is the one who killed somebody. Exactly. Mary is a pretty crappy person, but the fact that this documentary downplays Thomas's murdering someone instead of making Mary out to be the real bad guy... It's kind of gross because he chose to kill someone. She didn't make him do it. Thank you guys for tuning in for a little housekeeping. I want to just really quick give a shout out to a new podcast out there called True Crime Obsessed. They discuss true crime cases and documentaries that they've watched. Episode two is on a documentary called Catfish, which is a different catfish story. If you've seen the documentary Catfish or you watch it, go check out True Crime Obsessed. So for our shout outs, for our Patreon donors, uh, thank you to Mary F. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Eileen from the Misconduct Podcast. To Lauren P. Thank you. And Kim C. Thank you so much. And then for our five-star reviews, Tinker Panda, DL Teacher, AS Cannon 01, Chama K Esk, Gert1957, and E11. Thank you guys for taking the time to leave those reviews. You can find us on Facebook. We're Insight Two Words. We have a page where we post our episodes. Most stuff happens in our group. Feel free to join it. Twitter, you can talk to me directly at InsightfulPod. Instagram is Allie at InsightPod. You can email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com, our website, insightpod.com. We also have Patreon, where you can make an ongoing donation. We have bonus episodes. We are now a year into our bonus episodes, so we will be re-releasing last year's monthly episode and this year's monthly episode. And you get to listen to us when we first started. Oh, we're terrible. Like, please be very (laughs) forgiving. I almost didn't want to re-release them just because... They're from our early days, but you can compare how far we've come in those days. And also, if you go to our website, if you'd rather just give a one-off donation, we do have a PayPal account. All of these things go into funding our podcast. We have been traveling for meetups. We will hopefully continue that. We have at least two conferences we're planning on going to next year. Everything we get is just going right back into us producing the podcast or traveling to meet people or going to conferences where basically we spend our time meeting listeners. So we would 
love to be able to keep that up. You guys are really, really helping with that. And so we will see you guys next week.